I just think, how dare you spend that time Mm -hmm. getting to enjoy their football, celebrating when they score or do what you want them to do. But before they kick a ball, you have the audacity to boo them for, for standing up for what they believe in. My name is Nick Nagaku and you are locked into Culture TV. For the culture, by the culture. Let's go. Neve, thank you so much for coming down. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's boiling, you. isn't it? <sighs> too hot, too much. <laughs> so what what we were really impressed about you was um, we looked, we, we found your channel and we came across it. And um, what we thought was really cool is that football's our national sport, essentially, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't know what your perspective on this is, but from my perspective, I feel like there's just not quite enough female representation for the sport. Um, And then we stumbled across your channel and it was going off. What was kind of the inspiration behind and getting that going? Um, For for myself, really, it was was the lack of the inspiration that got Mm -hmm. me into it in the first place. You know, I throughout high school mm-hmm. my family that I talked to football about there's, there's, there were no girls there yeah. no family members that were, were female it yeah. was always talking to my granddad my dad or my mates at yeah. high school and it was more just me when I first started making content it, I was a bit oblivious to the fact that I was a girl talking about football because yeah, yeah, it just yeah. it, I didn't really that didn't come to my mind that yeah. I'm a girl talking about it but then sort of I started to make videos and the more and more you see on, online sexism in football is yeah. is prevalent and then the more I saw that the more it, it pushed me really because mm-hmm. you have the attitude of no I will talk about football if I want to yeah mm. and how long have you had the channel going for now uh, since my first video was at the Euro 2016 wow so okay so four years um yeah five now but, oh god it's 2021 <laughs> maths is not good so did you play sport as a um did you play football as a child uh, or yeah you I've Played it religiously uh, all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. I was playing, uh, I had a small time where I played with Rochdale yeah. as well. And then just as I got to sort of my A-levels, whereas if you're a lad and there's always a team at the weekend you can play for, whereas mm-hmm. it, it wasn't that accessible uh, where I grew up. So I just sort of stopped it. But I yeah. play five-a-side with my mates every week though. Have you noticed that in America, football or soccer, as they call it mm-hmm. over there, it's... um it's a lot more geared towards towards females, certainly from like a high school level mm. or or whatnot. I think that's I think that's kind of strange that the Americans have taken to it in in terms of like a female led sport more so than like than in the UK or in the rest of Europe. I feel like with that for America is of course with us football is the sport and every yeah. young lad growing up it's, it's more than likely he wants yeah. to be a footballer if he wants to be any yeah. um, athlete. However, in America, you've got basketball, you've got the NFL, yeah. got hockey, yeah. all sorts of sports. And for for women, it was an opportunity from a sort of make money from a commercial point of view yeah. to invest. It's where women's football across globally mm-hmm. just hasn't really been invested in much until America started doing it. And by doing it first, they've completely monopolized the market and the women in America are playing football, some of the money and sponsorship that they're earning from it as well. Yeah. Uh, I think they were quite clever to take that on board and, and give women a, a sport really where they can be the main heroes. Uh, have you followed the men's uh, t- sport, well, the men's um, game much in America? 
like the MLS? Yeah, here and there, but I, I sort of focus more on European yeah. football yeah. myself. Yeah, yes. Well, yeah. It's okay. it's funny, isn't it? Because like, it's almost like a career ending place where people go mm. at the end of their career. Like, I remember Ibra said, because uh, someone had asked him, they compared him to Carlos Vela at the yeah. time. And Carlos Vela was out there at his peak yeah. at a young age. Yeah. And they'd scored like the same amount of goals. And Ibra at the time was well into his 30s now, um, late 30s. And they asked, they compared him and he just said, the difference is when I was Carlos Vela's age, I was scoring the goals all in Europe, winning, you know, going mm-hmm. through the Champions League and, yeah. and winning titles. And Carlos Vela's doing that in the MLS. So he's picked yeah. his, his level. I think because the, the money out there is crazy. And what I don't understand is like, there's no, so in the, in the MLS, there's no promotion. Mm. There's no relegation. It's a bit like how the you know the the idea of the Super League mm. that was set up. You buy your way in, and then it's essentially just a tournament to the end. But if you lose, there's no consequence. And really, mm. if you win, there's not much to sort of win yeah. for either. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, my dad was out there. He went to watch a game, and he said it it was you know it wasn't bad. It was a nice surprise, but it did just feel almost like a middle class sport. It didn't yeah. really feel like you know here you can see it's a working class sport. Yeah. Whereas over there, it, it just felt like there were spectators watching a game, yeah. wanting to see players who had been in Europe and come over to retire here, yeah. get the chance to see them and just watch football uh, and not really support a team. Yeah, because like here, people support a team. It's tribal. People support mm-hmm. from the heart. Like they live and die for that particular yeah. team. Whereas um, we did a doc, we actually did a documentary on the MLS. It's kind of why I know a little bit about <laughs> it. So we went to loads of these games out there. Um, from like the top teams like the Seattle Sounders and LA Galaxy mm. to like the small USL clubs and, mm. and teams like that. And I think kind of what like what your dad's experience is kind of pretty much what I'd say was our experience mm. in the sense that it's a bit pantomime you know, yeah. how they support the team yeah. rather than, it doesn't really feel like it's coming from a place of passion. No. It's coming from a place of like, yeah, this is our team. We're going to support mm. them. Hurrah. <laughs> the stakes just aren't as high, are they, yeah. in, in football? Yeah. And, and I mean, as you say, if they've got of their passion, if they've got that in mm-hmm. basketball, their basketball team or whatever, and, yeah. and that is just purely just to go and sort of watch a game of, I mean, you've you called it soccer in itself. You exactly. just know it's, it's going to be well, not expecting much. Way, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of passion, so you, am I right in saying, it? did you go to the final? I did, yeah. What was that like? It's so strange because it was incredible, so incredible, but I can't look back to the final now without just thinking of that second as the full time as it blew and Saka's penalty. Yeah. And it, it's weird because I'm half Italian as well. So, so we divided loyalty. I was never divided loyalty. I was always really, really happy every time Italy went through. Yeah. Um, up until this year, I was, I've watched every major tournament with my dad and yeah. he's fully Italian. So yeah. I've always celebrated them. However, if England were ever to come up against Italy, which I just never even thought was going to happen, yeah. and it just did, then yeah. I was always going to support England. And so at that full-time whistle, it just didn't matter who it was we were playing in that moment. Yeah. It was I was just gutted. But then sort of a few days later, after having a conversation with my dad about it, I sort of got over it. Yeah. Um, but it was just gutting, absolutely gutting. What was the atmosphere like in there? Incredible, absolutely incredible. It was... I mean, there's a few people around us that were in there for free. Yeah. Uh, we'd seen them coming around as we were walking and they were jumping up on a porter cabin and yeah. that's how they got to the first level. And then every time <laughs> they opened the disabled door to let someone in, you just saw like 
515 year olds just swarming really? trying to get in and in the end they said about 2000 got in for free wow and so and a few of them were definitely around around us yeah um i thought if you're in here now, you yeah. don't want people drawing attention to you. And mm. they were there on their phones going, we're in for free, we're in for free, like that. But it was, <laughs> yeah, the atmosphere was, it was incredible, really loud. What did you make of the aftermath from that game? <laughs> we came back, because we got on the tube, we were staying in London. Yeah. And as we were walking past, we went to a quieter tube stop, which where we nearly missed our train in the end, just purely because I just said to Sean, who I was with, we, we cannot go that way because it was kicking off there were people fighting yeah and it just turned really sour really quick yeah and you could clearly see the after effects of drink drugs and mm. obviously a loss and, and an excuse for people to to be yeah. thuggish and yeah I, I would say that a lot of people let themselves down after the game also online obviously mm. with everything that we've seen that like that Sacco and Sancho and Rashford yeah. experienced afterwards. Do you think, as a football fan, I'm sure you've been to a lot of games or in, in, in your lifetime, do you think racism can ever be kicked out of football? I, I personally, I don't have that much optimism with it because, you know, no matter- That's hard to hear. So really, you don't have much optim optimism with it. No, because I, I think to myself, there are so many good people mm -hmm. And generally speaking, it's, it's almost a bit like with sexism and an issue with that in sport. Yeah. It's clearly a big issue within football. However, yeah. in all my time watching, I have never in the stands felt unsafe or felt like someone was being sexist towards me. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that you can go, no matter who you are, go to the football and be safe. I'm mm -hmm. positive that that is a thing and yeah. that it is such a minority of racist people, but the, the attitudes of those people, it's just that optimism of are they going to change those attitudes? Because if that is how they are, mm -hmm. then, and, and we see with things that have been more prevalent, you know, with Brexit and with yeah. um, with the recent couple of years. And I just feel like even more and more, it's just, this is how they are. Yeah. And I just, that's why I'm not optimistic is, is changing people. Yeah. But I am optimistic that you will be able to go to a football match and feel safe. Yeah. I, I, what I was really quite disappointed about was we've had the whole the, the fallout from the, what happened to George Floyd mm. over the past like 18 months. And I felt like there was a, I mean, I might have been, I must have, maybe we're all misreading it, but I felt like there was an awakening happening in the UK. And with everyone taking the knee and then hearing all them boos all the time. Mm. And it's like, how, at a game that is, and when you've got a team where half of the team are black mm. or, are, or are black or ethnic heritage. Mm. And then, and this is your supporters. Who, I just think, how dare you spend that time mm -hmm. getting to enjoy their football, celebrating when they score or do yeah. what you want them to do. But before they kick a ball, yeah. you have the audacity to boo them for, for standing up for what they believe in. Mm -hmm. And I can never get my head around it. And even with that, when they take the knee, you know, when <coughs> the people around me, they will cheer and clap louder to overcrowd yeah. the boos. And that's always nice. But I yeah. feel like that's my point before it's, whether or not people will get louder, people like me, people around me who are trying to support people, 
that will happen more and more, but it does not stop that there were still people in there mm-hmm. that are booing. Yeah. And their mentality is just not changing. Yeah. Do you think Saka should have taken that last penalty? Personally, no. I think that a 19-year-old never taken a senior penalty. I think I'd have been... If, if he'd taken a penalty within the five, yeah. then if if you're saying that Southgate's saying that in training he is one of the better penalty takers, then you have to understand that. And he's played a good part of the tournament. But that fifth penalty, which is the most important penalty of this nation's history in football, yeah. to put that Literally. on his shoulders <laughs> is just... On a 19-year-old yeah, shot, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I kind of felt that as well. I think there's a maturity required to to, to take mm. on that level of pressure mm. in any sport. But when when the odds, are, when the stakes are so high, there was what, 30, 40 million people watching that mm. game just in the UK. And we've got a 70 million population. That's nearly everyone watching it. Even with, I mean, Sancho, Rashford and Saka, you know, you're never going to predict that all three are going to miss a penalty all in a row after each no. other. But even if it was Rashford taking that last penalty, mm-hmm. he's had those three extra years. And in those three years, the amount of appearances he's played, he scored important penalties that one he took against PSG for United yeah. in the last minute, he rifled it home. Yeah. This is a guy who knows he can take penalty kicks. Yeah. He can... If this happens to him and he misses that that penalty, Marcus Rashford's got that experience and maturity to know mm-hmm. that that will only make him a better player. Yeah. And I think that's more difficult for a player like Bukayo Saka. But yeah. I hope he still does. And I, I think he will be able to learn from it. Yeah. I'm, I, I think the level of... The level of training that he will have been through his entire life to get to that standard that he's at now, to mm. be 19 years old and one of the major players for England, mm. I think... There'll be so much mental condition that he's already gone through that yeah. I'm, I'm sure that training will will prevail, yeah. even as the, as this situation moves forward. So I seen that you um you actually went to see Southgate. Yeah, uh, it was this year. It was just before the Euros. It was supposed to be um just after when the Euros were supposed to go ahead in 2020. Yeah. But because of COVID, it was postponed, and that was I thought that was great because it was literally a couple of weeks before yeah. it kicked off. And oh, it was incredible. He was just so humble, down to earth. And you just thought it was a, a local dog walker if you'd yeah. never met him. He was just so, so nice. And it was purely there just to hear our stories. Right. I wasn't the only one there. There was um, young Philly was there, who was obviously battling mental health. Mm-hmm. And he was there to talk about that. Uh, Tyra, who is a young black girl in London, who has got a massive involvement in sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cameron, who is hoping to become the first Asian, British Asian player in the England senior team. And so it was all sort of different backgrounds and stories. And he just wanted to focus a bit more on sort of the grassroots level of football Mm -hmm. uh, in that interaction. Do you think it's crazy that we haven't had a British Asian player in the national team as yet? Yeah, I think when when I spoke to, because I spoke to Cameron about it, because I wanted to, because... When you hear that, it just does seem astounding, especially like, how many yeah, people, the population. Like 10 million British Asians. Mm. I feel when I spoke to Cameron, he said there's two things he thinks it's because, and it's all, they almost affect each other. Mm-hmm. And you don't know which one's the cause and effect is that growing up, if you are British Asian, don't you don't really want to get involved with football. You yeah. don't. But then at the same time, there's 
no representation there and there's nobody that's like pushing you to think it's possible yeah and he's hoping to be that representation uh, that makes it so they think that actually this is something that i can do and just yeah. so that if they go to their local academy or mm-hmm. wherever they go to the club there's mm-hmm. going to be other people that are british asian and yeah. they're not just going to be the only one it just takes that first person really though to, to fly the flag doesn't mm-hmm. it and then it it kind of opens up the belief system yeah. for everyone else. What if he can do it, mm. then we can do it. So what? Where is where is he up to on his journey? With that, how old is he? He's currently at Wolves. Yeah. He's, I think he's eighteen or nineteen, so he's still young. Yeah, and he's got a really good support system around him. Yeah, and they're really sort of pushing and helping him. His family are really supportive as well. So yeah. they've got a lot of optimism that they can. They can go that, far. That he can do it. Has he played first team for Wolves yet? He's not played first team yet. He's he's. I think he's playing for the under twenty ones now. He's right. just broken into that. Mm-hmm. And because he was, we had a five a side game at St George's Park. We went yeah. there, and apparently it was like someone was breathing down to say, "Don't let him get involved too much because we need what to keep him." What position does he play? Uh, Centre back. Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So he could be our first British Asian English player. Yeah. Wow. Hopefully so. That's amazing. So what did um what did you specifically speak to Southgate about? So my conversation was about the opportunities for for women in football, and and not necessarily a career in it. Just growing up, having a football team to play for. Mm-hmm. I, I've struggled a lot in my life with mental health issues, and yeah. I know for sure that if I had a football team, a football team to play for every Saturday, yeah. uh, even just a you know, my friends would pay four quid a week to be in a league yeah but it existed the league and yeah. they would sort of travel for them mm-hmm. they have a, a ground for them to play at and yeah. it doesn't matter if you're paying to play football or not when you're in that match it's competitive yeah, yeah. and i know for a hundred percent that if i'd had that it would have helped me a lot and football does give a lot of people purpose and something yeah. to look yeah, forward to but growing up in a lot of areas sort of northern working class towns for example it's yeah that the funding is just minimal. So I was there to talk about sort of how I want that to improve. And what was his thoughts on it? Yeah, he agreed that it is a problem. Uh, he's got a daughter <clears throat> who is into netball. Yeah. Um, but, and football wasn't necessarily accessible for her. And But he also was talking about sort of the different pop-up centers and stuff that they, yeah. they have coming through. However, I, feel, I felt positive from the conversation, but I did still come from it, come away from it thinking more does still need to be to be done going forward there just needs to be funding in place doesn't it yeah there needs to be and then these like so my nephew he's played for um he played he's played for like city he's played for united you know for the for the academy teams mm. and like those big teams they'll pick you up drop you pick you yeah. up drop you and i get it we get it that's the way that thing works but then he's his grassroots team that he plays for where every saturday every sunday he's there you'll play which various other teams every single week and there's a league there's a system there's referees in place there's coaches mm-hmm. scouts come there and there's just a whole structure or infrastructure in place mm-hmm. for these kids and then like every week it's like where they're they playing fails with so there's like one two three four ground four four pitches yeah. there's like four matches on each pitch in the morning so that's what 16 matches for 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 young kids mm-hmm. How many kids is that? Like 150, 200 kids all getting to play football every, on a Saturday. And that's just one yeah. one place. And I think if that same opportunity was provided to to women, then I think like 
it would just create a lot more opportunity for the sport in, say, mm. in terms of a women's league. But I think it could it would also create more interest and more fans and more money mm. and more resources because that's what it takes, isn't it? I think people are pushing for it as well. I mean, you looked at the the France World Cup, Women's mm -hmm. World Cup in 2019. I was out there for a couple of games. They sold out every stadium. Did they? On BBC, they were getting 10 million plus views on Sick. games. The England-USA game broke records. And it's there. And the more you see that representation on your screens now, because when I was growing up, I won't lie, and I said this to Southgate, I wasn't thinking of any women footballers in, in terms of like when you're young and you pretend to be players or say, yeah, I yeah. want to play like that. I was, I'd was, i always say Pirlo, me. I played yeah. in the field and say Pirlo. <laughs> there was never a woman yeah. because there was nowhere to watch it, no TV yeah. channel. For all there's I knew, there's no female wasn't... superstars. No, you're right. And I think, I think that's part, there's no one looking at them and dreaming, is it? And I think that's, mm. that's kind I think of like it will come. Problem. And I think it will come soon at the top because nations like america are funding it yeah. and the rest of the world are following i've noticed france germany italy putting more funding into their women's team yeah. at the top it exists more in england in the last few years as well mm -hmm. and i think names coming up now lucy bronze in this country alex yeah. morgan american some names are coming through and more and more names will come through and, and i just think as well as you say in some of these working class areas yeah like my mum works in a primary school and, and the girls and boys in there, they are willing to graft. Yeah. They will do their schoolwork yeah. and then they'll play football yeah, till yeah. all hours and they'll do it and just give them that, that opportunity and not just the opportunity, but make it accessible for them. If yeah. it's a one hour drive to get to it, two hour yeah. drive to get to it, then they are going to struggle to get to training in the football matches. So just making it more frequent and more accessible for young girls. And there's a lot, there's a lot more grounds available as well nowadays because mm. like, I think there's council orders where there have to be so many like yeah. recreational facilities in X amount of square miles or whatever mm. so there is the ability to do it there just needs to be infrastructure system I think and most importantly a will yeah. from people in like the places above to Boris Johnson recently came out and said that he doesn't want a football pitch to be more than 15 minutes away from anybody but I almost feel like that's not really the problem there is football pitches yeah. within 15 minutes to most people it's just that you have to pay quite a lot to to get on that it's yeah. most of these pitches for an hour is at least 100 quid so instead of creating more and more football pitches try and make it more affordable yeah. for the people getting involved because yeah just getting them playing football instead of God knows what else they could be doing in that time when mm -hmm. they're growing up is, is so important. What did you think of Southgate's performance as a manager during this Euros? I can't fault him at the moment in terms of... Is that because you met him? <laughs> and you feel a bit tight, did not you? Before I met him, I could fault everything. <laughs> no, I, I, think in, I think there are things that I have disagreed with, but when they've happened and they've got us results, mm -hmm. I've almost feel like, I can understand it still. Like, for example, Phillips and Rice. Yeah. Before the game kicked off and we saw Phillips and Rice, that is something mm. that in my head I would disagree with. But when I saw yeah. it in motion, I thought, I can understand why he's, he's done it. Yeah. Same with Saka playing as well against Germany. The penalties, that's the only thing where I cannot see it from his perspective. I can't see him bringing on Rashford and Sancho for that little time with mm. jelly legs go yeah. coming up for those penalties when it is known that players are more likely to miss if they have those few seconds on the pitch yeah. and then putting Saka at, at fifth but in terms of throughout the tournament game by game yeah. I thought we set out very well I think the, like, the, like the proof is in the pudding and the mm. day we, we got into the finals of the Euros yeah. that's never happened mm. and 
It's the first final since 1966. Um, and before that, we got in the semis in the World Cup. So his mm. performance as a manager, he's outdone everybody else. Yeah. Up, up, well, certainly in the last 30, 40 odd years. Mm. So I think there is, like, the stats don't lie, do they? Mm. He has actually made sort of those gains and, and those achievements. What is your prediction of two things? Do you think he should stay on for World Cup 2022? And what, what, how do you, how do you, far do you think we can go in that? I think it's almost like you're a victim of your own success because if he doesn't win the World Cup now in 2022, yeah, I finished. will understand that they get rid of him now because we've got to a semi-final, we've got to a final. The players we've got, a lot of our players, you can put arguments in for being top five in the world in most positions, yeah. or they'll be that way by the time that World Cup comes round, and. You've got to question if you can't win a World Cup with this group of players that got to the final this time around, you can learn from it, go out there and win that World Cup. Then if there is a successor that they think can take them further, mm -hmm. I know people have talked about Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard as potential candidates, then you have got to think, really, has your time come up? And you can't afford to be sort of dining off previous success you've got to keep it going to that standard yeah. and and if we don't win the world cup i will understand if they get rid of him and bring someone new i think we've got to keep the momentum going now mm. like we've had a semi-final we've had a final let's see what world cup 2022 brings mm. but if we don't win and we do a semis i think anything less than a semis would be a failure yeah 100 percent. it'd have to be a semis but i think if we did a semis again i think yeah he'd have to go but if they brought in someone else who can keep that momentum going and we keep hitting top four, top three or top two every single time there's a major tournament, I think it's surely it's just a matter of time before we just get it over yeah. the line. You've got to remember though as well, we are mostly, we're favourites going into this, we're second favourites going into this Euros. Going into that World Cup, we could be favourites. It would not surprise me yeah. if... They could turn around and say France favourites. There's multiple teams yeah. that could get it. But if they did turn around and say that England are the favourites, it wouldn't surprise you because looking at their squad, they are more than capable of winning that World Cup. It is That is a nation that should be winning yeah. the World Cup. And so it's almost... I feel like it's the British public that stop it because none of us really quite believe. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, because <clears throat> it's never happened. Yeah. Maybe it's like, I don't know. Like, we all get so gassed and like so excited <laughs> for it. But... I think there's all there's a little part of us that thinks ah oh, it's never quite going to mm. happen this and it never does quite no. happen, but no I I see what it, like we have always been like favourites or second favourites and when I see them stats I think who's making this because who's deciding whether whether <laughs> we're the favourites or not because I'm sure no one here thinks we are no. do you know what, <laughs> do you know what I mean I do wonder <clears> that I think look at the the teams that we've had in the last sort of 20 30 years that yeah. haven't managed to go the way yeah and i just think there must be a it's be a curse on english football there's no point putting us favorites because yeah. it, it just doesn't look like it's ever going to happen for us yeah. one way or another something will go wrong and the teams that we had the sort of so-called england golden generations in their 90s and the early noughties yeah. they were able to achieve i think what's changed since then though is the rivalry between players at club level mm -hmm. just doesn't exist 
anymore. Mm. Whereas I remember Frank Lampard and Rio Ferdinand, they were together at West Ham and when they left for Chelsea and United, they didn't speak to each other again until retirement. And they were really good friends. Wow. And you compare that now to the friendships you see across the Premier League. I saw Bruno Fernandes at the City Players' House a few months ago. And even with the England team as yeah. well, look at Declan Rice and Mason Mount. Like the friendships that they've got, they are fighting for each other mm -hmm. and they have got that bond. Whereas yeah. in the last sort of 20 years, it wasn't that way. Yeah. With players like Gerard Lampard, Scholes, it didn't exist. Yeah. And so I think that as well, where is where we need to really make the most of this group of lads. I heard that, um, I think it was around the 2006 or I can't remember, 2010 World Cup or one, I can't remember exactly. It was around that time when you had Beckham, Gerrard, Scholes, and um, you, had a, you had a huge sort of midfield and defence from, from United and the England team. And I heard that it was very divided as, as far as like the United players would all sort of base up together in, mm. in the England camp. Then you'd have a couple of Chelsea players, the Liverpool players would all be, and it, it was very separate in how they would act socially. Mm. And that can never be good for, for a winning team. And other nations just don't get it as well. They never used to understand what is going on here. Like, mm -hmm. as I say, I'm half Italian and I know firsthand that the rivalry in Italian football, I mean, it goes quite political as well. Yeah. It's huge. And uh, my family are all Napoli and Napoli and any any other team in yeah. Syria, they can't stand them. But when Insigne from Napoli representing them, when he's there in that camp, he is best friends with Chiellini. They're best, yeah. all best friends. And they just can't, I don't think they could ever understand why English players used to really take their rivalry through to the, the national camp. I think it's. I think part of it is because we have got the number one league in the world. Yeah. The Premier League is. It's the league that everyone, no matter where you are in the world, it's the place you dream of playing, and what our clubs mean to to people. I mean, Italy is kind of similar, I suppose, isn't it? It's like people are very passionate about football there, mm. and in France. So I suppose, yeah, I get what you're saying, but maybe maybe that is something to do with it because there are Premier League players and the Premier League is so idolised and mm. the teams within it that maybe that is what had caused those frictions in the past. Mm. But it is good to see that you can de you can definitely see that them boundaries are getting smoothed out now with the current England team. My question as well, I think, you know, when you say, how has that happened? Because it doesn't just happen out of nowhere. Mm. I feel like Southgate deserves a bit of respect for that as well. Because yeah, yeah, you look yeah. at previous managers, Fabio Capello, Sven Goran Eriksson, yeah. Roy Hodgson, and you compare them to the sort of man that Gareth Southgate is. Yeah. And... In terms of a, a person who's looking after them as young lads, yeah. I can't think of anyone better as a candidate for that, which is why I would keep him for that World Cup 100%. Yeah. And Fabio Capello, the stories that Terry and Carragher have got to say about him, like not like banning ketchup and, yeah. you know, creating all sorts of strict rules and making it a hostile environment to be in will obviously create those rivalries. Whereas the environment that Southgate's created with England is just so much more diverse and welcoming. Yeah. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I think I think 100% he's got to stick it out for the next World Cup. I think it'd be stupid to take mm. him out now, put someone brand new in who's unproven. Yeah. Southgate's got the best track record of any England manager for the past God knows how long. He's got to get the chance at the World Cup. And if and if we don't win the World Cup in 2022, see mm. you later. But if not, then... It's a ruthless sport, it's isn't it? It's a ruthless sport. <laughs> All sport is, but it has to be, doesn't it? Because yeah. it's competitive. And I think that's why like, there was such an uproar against like the Super League, because it wasn't a competitive. Mm. It would have just destroyed everything. It would have destroyed mm. the Premier League. 
it would have destroyed like the French leagues and the German leagues because all the top teams are going to be there yeah. and no one's going to care about, about. I think here more than anywhere as well in Europe, you can go down quite a lot of divisions mm. and you still got so many supporters. Yeah. You know, Bolton were in League Two, which is the bottom division. Yeah. And still we'd have had minimum 12,000 people in that stadium. There's True. a lot of supporters and big communities of football yeah. and it would have damaged all of them. Yeah. And that is something that is special about English football is that local support for yeah. every everywhere in the country. And it would have affected so many people. It would have affected jobs as well. Yeah. And it would have affected the ability to get into the league. Because like, mm. I think even as a, a Division 2 player, you can still make a damn good living out of mm. football. Like you're still, what, five grand a week? Or- yeah. It's 20 grand a month, it's 200 grand a year or something. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's a, and that for a Division II player who's playing in front of like five, ten thousand 10,000 people a week, it's not the 70,000 you're getting in the Premier League, but still, mm. it's a lot. And and it adds a lot to the culture and the society. And yeah, it's, I'm glad that, I'm glad that got you uh, turned pretty. I was outside Gig Lane uh, a few times during the time when Berry were just. Yeah. Um, liquidated and you would be surprised at the amount of people that were there outside just in tears yeah. and to a lot of supporters who don't understand Barry might support a club far away or not really touch that level do not realize just quite how important Barry Football Club is yeah. to a whole town of people and the Super League is every single town affected by that and mm. so it would just never ever happen in this country because the fans do have too much of a voice because yeah. football means so much to them. Was it Tottenham that bailed out on it first? I can't remember. It was, I think it was City bailed out on it because they then said that they didn't actually know what they were getting into and yeah. sort of played that card, which yeah. with them, I was so shocked that they joined in the first place with yeah. Sheik Mansour because he's got everything right so yeah. far at City for Manchester and, yeah. and everything. I just was so shocked by that. And and then they all just sort of crumbled. Yeah, once they once <laughs> yeah. they pulled out, everyone else was like, "Hang on a minute." Yeah, this isn't worth <laughs> if it. If City aren't in there, City's like the rich, one of the richest clubs in the world. Mm. Yeah, Neve, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.